Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Confucius. This is going to be the last segment of the three-part segment on him. I'm not going to end up going through the entire Analects. Um, we will, you know, as as with always in later uh, seasons, we will pick up again on a lot of these people we're talking about. But I did want to sort of hit some of the more important points in the last sections of the book. Uh, and by important, I don't mean the other ones aren't important, but um, by important, I mean ones that seem to really stand out uh, when we're thinking about the way things are today and the way society is today. Uh, you have to remember Confucius did not live in a society he felt was a good, stable society. He saw it as something that was degenerate, that was falling apart, and this is why he wrote the Analects. This is why he you know, studied the the wisdom of the uh, of the ancestors of the ancients because he wanted to return things to a better place. You know, remember, and this he's like pretty much every other philosopher. You know, most philosophers, especially if they're political or social philosophers, don't view themselves as living in the greatest time ever. They view themselves as living in a time where. Uh, things are not going well and things need to be better. And they've taken different paths to try to, you know, piece together how we can make everything better. You know, even think about literary traditions like the modernists. You know, the modernists in literature, uh, beginning of the 20th century, saw themselves as living in a broken world and wanted to kind of delve back into the past and find the pieces and put them together in a better way. So keep that in mind, you know, as we talk about all of these philosophers. These people aren't living in perfect times. Um, they're looking around and they're they're searching for answers of how can we get to better times. And so for today I'm going to focus on three books in the Analects. I'm going to focus on books 12, 13, and 16. And like I said, some point in the season in the future we will come back and do more of these. Uh, but for today, I'm sticking to these three. Uh, book 12, um, a lot of this book deals with goodness and trying to figure out what constitutes goodness. Um, and a lot of this goes back and forth like the, you know, the dialogues of Plato um, where people are asking questions and he's responding. You know, they're trying to go back and forth to come up with, you know, what exactly constitutes the answers they're looking for. Um, and when they talk about goodness, he says, the key to achieving goodness lies within yourself. How could it come from others? In other words, Confucius doesn't think um, that you can expect something from the outside to show you goodness, expect something from the outside to lead you. You have to lead yourself. You have to um, become good yourself. You have to look inside yourself and find the answers. And a lot of this is, you know, very much what you hear in a lot of other philosophers and you hear uh, in, in, you know, pretty much every tradition. Uh, you hear it in, you know, Socrates, you know, know thyself. You know, this idea of if you're going to start to know the world, if you're going to start to understand anything, uh, whether it's goodness, whether it's happiness, whether it's justice, whatever it is, um, the first place you have to start is the place you know the best, and the place you know the best is yourself. Um, and he talks about, 
uh, sort of how to uh, behave. Master said, when in public, comport yourself as if you were receiving an important guest. And in your management of the common people, behave as if you were overseeing a great sacrifice. Do not oppose upon others what you do not desire. In this way, you will encounter no resentment in your public or private life. So to just break that down a little bit. Um, when you are out in public with other people, you know, always try to make them feel like they're important, like they're, you're, you know, you, you feel that they're worthy of being there. You're glad they're there. Uh, this is a good lesson for everyday life. I mean, when you meet people, if you shrug them off, if you dismiss them, if you, you know, view them as, oh, you're just in my way, you're nobody significant, uh, you're going to run into a lot of anger and resentment in the world. Because what you've done is basically looked at these other people and said, you're not even worth my consideration. You're not even worth me thinking of as a person. And so, you know, one of the ways to kind of approach being good is to avoid this. You know, every person you see is an important person. They have a life. They have a family. They have things they've contributed. They have a lot of goodness in themselves. So when you treat them like they're important, you you kind of open doors. Uh, let's see. Do not listen and let... Oh, sorry. Wrong passage. Uh, if you are receiving an important guest, in your management of common people, behave as if you were uh, overseeing a great sacrifice. So in other words, when somebody brings you a problem, or when somebody brings up an issue with them, don't be dismissive. Don't treat it as, oh, this is just something insignificant. Because again, this kind of builds that wall and, and shuts them out. And remember, a lot of what Confucius is really trying to do is build a good society. Um, and you can't build a good society without the inclusion of other people. So when you dismiss other people's problems as petty and not worth very much, what you're basically doing is saying, again, you're not significant, you're not important, who cares about your problems? And that's why he says, treat it as if you would a great sacrifice. You know, give them attention. Uh, show them that what they're, you think what they're talking about, what they're dealing with is important. Um, do not impose upon others what you and uh, what you yourself do not desire. Uh, this is something that a lot of times when you have some kind of top-down power system, the people at the top will force people to do jobs. For example, in, in the workplace, uh, you know, you'll make somebody do a job that is unpleasant, and it's you know not something you'd want to do, so you just force onto them. You know, if you really want to lead, and a lot of this is, you know, for leaders, for leaders to come forth and actually lead people. Uh, if, if you want to be a leader, you can't have people do things that you're unwilling to do. You have to also be able to and be willing to do the unpleasant things. You know, a personal example out of my, you know, past as a, as a manager in restaurants. Um, I never asked employees to do jobs that I wouldn't do. And I would do those jobs from time to time instead of asking an employee if there was a mess, you know, in the bathroom or if there was garbage that needed to be taken out. I would do these jobs sometimes also so that when, you know, I asked employees to do it, they felt like, you know, I'm not 
shoveling this off on them because I think they're just a peon then beneath me they see that oh you took your turn I take my turn we're working together on this um resentment often comes from the fact of why do you make me do this when you would never do this you make more money than I do or you have a higher position than I do so you know keep in mind that a lot of this is towards the better individual but building the better individual to be the better leader uh, skipping along to section nine in the uh, in this section uh, in this book 12 uh, the harvest was poor and I cannot satisfy my needs. What should I do? The master said, you should not try taxing, you should try not taxing the people one part in ten. I'm sorry. Why do you not try taxing the people one part in ten? I am currently taxing them two parts in ten and even so I cannot satisfy my needs. How can reducing the tax to one part in ten help? Uh, the master answered, if the common people's needs are satisfied, how could you... How could their Lord be lacking? If the common people's needs are not satisfied, how can their Lord be content? So in other words, the, this person saying, you know, my, my people aren't bringing me in enough wealth. What can I do? They're not satisfying my needs. And he's saying, well, cut back on how much you're taking from them. Um, and this, you know, allows the people to keep more of what they have to, to satisfy their own needs, to people doing the work. And one of the things that, you know, the message behind this is basically, you know, if the people working under you are doing well, you will end up doing well in the long run. If times are hard and they are the only ones that suffer, then there's, you know, you're not, li you're not um, setting yourself up in a position of stability. Because eventually, if times are hard enough, uh, they will just... Either go away, go work somewhere else, overthrow you, whatever the case may be, depending on the relationship. So, you know, this message is, you know, when times are bad, we all got to take some of the suffering, even at the top. You can't just say, well, I'll just make them work twice as hard so I get what I want, um, and who cares if they suffer? Because part of his system is that, is sort of the idea of, of the... Uh, nation of the of the group as a family you know if you want a happy successful family you have to raise up all of the members of that family you can't be successful by stomping on a few of the members and and this is the ethic that he's trying to instill in the ruling class uh, and this this is something that you you know will see over and over again whenever you have a monarchy uh, whenever you have an aristocratic system, there's always sort of this belief built into it that the political system is supposed to imitate the family system. You know, the king is like the father. The, the, you know, the children and the, and the spouse are, are like the, the people. Um, and it, for it to be a good king, a good king needs to be a good provider for the family. Children need to be happy. The children need to be fed. The children need to feel secure. If the children have all of these things and they're happy, then the king is secure in his position. The king is happy. So this is a very common way of talking about top-down political systems in particular. To sort of compare them with the family dynamic. Um, okay. Uh, further down, section 17. To govern means to be correct. 
If you set an example by being correct yourself, who will dare to be incorrect? So in other words, this goes back again to lead by example. You know, he, he says this over and over again. If you want the people below you to do the right thing, whether you're their president, their king, their supervisor, or even just, you know, friends in a social situation, um, or family members, if you want people to do the correct thing, you should be doing the correct thing, and then they will follow your example. You know, they're not going to follow an example of do what I say, not what I do. You know, this is what most people would look at as being a hypocrite when somebody says, oh, it's bad for you to do this, and then they go do that thing they said was bad. But, you know, they're, they're above that, so they're allowed to do it. Uh, and, you know, this is something he's pointing out very directly. If you want everyone to be good, start with you. Set the example. If you're not doing what you're supposed to do, how can you expect anyone in, in you know, the levels below you or around you to be doing what they're supposed to do? Um, they start asking about executions. If I were to execute those who lack the way in order to advance those who possess the way, how would that be? He, uh, Confucius responds, In your governing, sir, what need is there for executions? If you desire goodness, then the common people will be good. The virtue of a gentleman is like the wind. The virtue of a petty person is like the grass. When the wind moves over the grass, the grass is sure to bend. So in other words, again, this is reinforcing that same idea that if you, ha <clears throat> you have people that are you know, in need of execution, it probably has to do with the fact of examples you are setting. You know, if you are setting example of, you know, bullying or being greedy or, you know, you can kill any enemy you have just because they're in your way, you know, these things are going to filter down. Um, people often look for heroes. They look for role models. And whether that's a political, uh, sports figure, entertainment figure, uh, a writer, a thinker, you know, they look for role models to pattern themselves after. And when you are in a position of power, you are a role model. So if you don't set that example, if you set bad examples, they will follow that because they will see you as, well, I want to be like this person. That's what this person does. I need to be that way. You know, and this is why I think oftentimes that, you know, sports and entertainment figures are often horrible role models. Um, not because they're bad people, but because they don't necessarily think of themselves that way. They're doing their, uh, you know, their, their craft, whatever that is, whether that's a sport, whether that's acting, whether that's music, whatever it is, and they're focusing on that aspect, and they don't understand sometimes, I think, how much the people that idolize them want to be like them, uh, are going to pick up not only the good things they do, but the bad things they do. And it's a lot of pressure to sort of be uh, a role model. Um, it, it's something that is, it, it requires more of you than people realize, because you have to be extra aware of how you behave. And you have to, according to Confucius, you know, make sure your behaviors and your patterns of doing things are correct. Um, 
because it has greater visibility. It has a greater ability to influence for the bad or the good. And his, you know, goal again is to create the good society. Okay, book 13, we're going to jump up to there. Um, he says, uh, Duke of Way were to employ you to serve in the government of the state. What would be your first priority? Uh, and the master answered, it would be, of course, the uh, rectification of names. Now, this might throw people off, and it might sound like he's saying, you know, honoring the right people. That's, that's not what he means by names. He's talking about names of things, um, using proper and correct terminology when talking about things. One of the big... Uh, movements in the 20th and the 21st century in philosophy and in literary analysis is this kind of linguistic turn uh, where you have people in logic, you know, people in, you know, creative writing, uh, people in uh, a lot of the sciences and social sciences really starting to pay attention on how language, if it's, especially if it's unclear language, um, can cause a lot of problems. And you even have people that try to come up with, you know, perfectly logical languages so that everybody can speak the same language, be on the same page, and there won't be any misunderstanding. Uh, Wittgenstein, for one, um, really was in, into a lot of the, la uh, the logic of language and the logic of, you know, saying things correctly. And if you can't say things correctly and specifically and have them apply to reality, then there are things you shouldn't be talking about at all. So you should only be talking about the things that you can convey clearly. And this is, in, you know, and you know, this is twenty early twentieth century, and Confucius back thousands of years before here, before then, is already talking about that. That one of the things that you you first have to do is you kind of have to clean up language. You have to get rid of the vagueness. Um, you know, think about how many words we use that are very imprecise. Uh, and I, as a writing teacher, I would try to, you know, convey this idea to students. Uh, if you tell me, you know, something like, he was a big man, that doesn't really tell me anything. It, it tells me a lot of possible things, but it doesn't clear it up so that I can really understand what you mean. Because there are different meanings for big, and there are, and big is going to vary depending on the person who says it. If someone is, you know, five feet five inches tall, uh, big might be six feet tall. Uh, if someone is seven feet tall, big would be eight feet tall. Uh, you know, it's it's a word that varies depending on who says it. And, and their meaning for it is going to change. But that's not the only way to look at big. Big could mean tall, it could mean heavy, it could mean muscular, it could mean influential, it could mean significant. There, there's a lot of ways that that word can be used. And then there's even ways that are uh, what, what I would call sarcastic. You know, you say he's big as in you know, he's a nobody. He's not significant. You know, you're using it in that way. And when people only have, especially the written word, when they don't have tone of voice, when they don't have body language, when they don't have, you know, gestures, uh, 
uh, it really opens the door for a lot of confusion. So I, you know, I would try to tell people if you're going to describe someone and you want they're they're big, don't say they're big, give a more accurate description. Uh, they're six feet five inches tall, uh, weigh two hundred and thirty-five pounds, um, muscular build. That gives me a whole lot more description and a whole lot more that I can visualize than just saying he's big. Um, now I know that you mean big in a physical sense. I know that you mean tall and muscular. Um, I'm not left with all of these vague impressions. And so this is one of the things that Confucius is talking about with rectification of names. You know, he's talking about, first thing I would do is, you know, kind of make sure we're all on the same page with the words we use. Because word choice really does shape the way we see the world. Um, this is something in the 20th and 21st century that's been proven, you know, even more uh, than what some people may have suspected. That you don't have words for certain things, um, you don't really have a way to describe that thing. If you don't have descriptive words, it's hard for you to describe it. And this can change from language to language even. You know, some languages have a lot of words for red. Um, you know, they're different types of red. Some words, some languages don't have very many at all. And so it shapes your perception, your language. And what Confucius is talking about is we need a more clear language. And this will help clear up a lot of the problems. Because a lot of the human issues that we have have to do with miscommunication. Okay, uh, the next section uh, in 13, section 4, I uh, fancy asked to learn about plowing and growing grain from uh, Confucius. The master said, when it comes to that, any old farmer would be a better teacher than I. He asked about the growing of fruits and vegetables. The master said, when it comes to that, any old gardener would be a better teacher than I. This is something, too, that I've, you know, we have a problem with in contemporary society is what's, what's known as the fallacy of faulty authority. If you want to know about a specific thing, don't assume one person is an authority on everything. This is what Confucius is trying to say. I'm not, he's saying, I'm not a farmer. If you want to know about farming, go ask a farmer. That is an expert in that field. You know, uh, we, a lot of times in, in contemporary society, have a lot of what I call, you know, faulty authority because people will, you know, get behind an idea, but they don't have any, uh, you know, they don't have any qualifications to support that idea. And a lot of times, you know, people will vote uh, because their favorite singer or their favorite actor or actress or, you know, their favorite uh, sports star will say, oh, this is the candidate to vote for, or this is the proposition to vote for. Well, you know, these people may be very talented in whatever field they have, but that doesn't necessarily mean, mean they know a lot about political theory, social theory, uh, and what kinds of economic theory and what kinds of policies would work. You know, you have to always remember, just because someone is an expert in one field does not make them an expert in every field. And this is what Confucius is trying to pass along. You know, why would you ask me about farming? I'm not a farmer. Go ask the farmer. They can tell you the best ways to do it. Okay, uh, moving 
a little further. Let's go to section six. Uh, when the ruler is correct, his rule, his will is put into effect without the need for official orders. When the ruler is not correct, he will not be obeyed, no matter how many orders he issues. So, in other words, this is he's kind of you know going back to that idea of uh, if if you're not doing the things correctly as a ruler, no one's going to listen to you. And this really puts it you know, why you have to know what you're doing and why you have to behave the way you should behave. Because if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing and you're doing what everyone should be doing, you know, people will look up to you. They will follow that. You don't necessarily have to write a law that says that. You know, if they see the ruler being kind to someone, they're going to say, oh, I want to be like the ruler. I should be kind to someone. Uh, if they see the ruler slapping people around and writes a law that says you must be kind to everyone, you know, this is what he means. People are like, uh, yeah, who cares? That, that, that's not what he really means, or that's not what we really should do. Uh, if a true king were to arise, we would certainly see a return to goodness after a single generation. And, you know, again, this isn't, this is a building that he sees, you know, a building is in a building of goodness, a building of a good society. It doesn't happen overnight. You can't have a good king pop onto the scene and then suddenly everything is fixed. You know, the the proper rituals, the proper rites have to be established. And by rituals and rites, basically the proper ways of doing things. So as the king comes onto the scene, is doing everything properly, these ideas spread out through the kingdom, and then eventually everyone is doing them properly. Um, and, and, you know, this is the goal. He wants long-term stability. This is not about making a decision about this or that. And that's another thing about Confucius, that even though he does get into some day-to-day -day specifics, those day-to-day -day specifics should be thought of as more of, well, this is right in this instance, and this is something we should always do also. Um, anyone who has ever... Uh, studied the philosopher Kant. I, I did an episode on Kant in one of the earlier seasons where he has the categorical imperative. Um, the categorical imperative for Kant is do what you feel should be what everyone does in every situation. So that's that's the right thing to do. If you, when, Once you find out the right thing to do, that's the right thing in every situation. Now the problem with Kant is Kant is very inflexible with that. Uh, Confucius tends to be a little more flexible. Uh, in fact, in earlier books, we talked about the fact that, you know, he said you can't just automatically do things by the rituals. Sometimes the conditions might vary and you have to go, okay, this time things are not quite the same. We need to do it this other way. Uh, let's see. I'm going to flip ahead to... Um, book 16. Uh, in this book, he talks about several things, and one of the first things he talks about are the three types of beneficial friendships. Um, he says there are three types that are beneficial. Befriending the upright, uh, those who are true to their word, or those who are of broad learning. Those are the three types of friendships you should seek out. So, you know, people who do what they're supposed to do, the upright, the gentleman. That's who you should be hanging around with. Uh, and a lot of this has to do with the fact that um, 
it, for most people, you really do become who you hang around with. You become like them. Their traits, their mannerisms rub off on you. Um, if you are the gentleman, he talks about this. There's, there's sort of a different way that you can be if you're the gentleman. Because if you're the gentleman going around these people who are not quite good, you do that with the intention that you will rub off on them and they will move more towards you. Um, so there is sort of this hierarchy in Confucius. There's the idea that there's the common person who, you know, pretty much has to just be shown the way and will go through it automatically almost if, if they're shown the right way and if they're kept to the right traditions. Uh, and then you have the people who can um, sort of reshape the world around them and understand what they're doing. This is very much an aristocratic system. This is not a all men are created equal system, not even close. Um, you know, there are, uh, and this goes back into ancient times, there were the beliefs that were, you know, there are arist aristocratic people who are just better than everyone else. Um, now, it doesn't mean, with Confucius, it's not a uh, sort of like a titled uh, aristocracy so much as it is an aristocracy of the mind. You know, people who are able to do these things, are smarter, are able to analyze and see these things, are in a different class than people who aren't. So he does classify sort of an aristocracy in a common people, but it's not you're born to common people, you could never be part of that, uh, you know, aristocratic ability to think. So there is uh, a little bit of a divergence, but it has more to do with individual talent. Uh, you also see this in Plato. Plato also brings this out, that as people you know, move up through his system in the Republic, uh, they will naturally go into where they are. And some people are you know, naturally predisposed to be soldiers. Some are naturally predisposed to be in business. And some are naturally predisposed to be the philosopher kings. So there is kind of this, it isn't in everybody's equal. you got to remember, especially with a lot of the earlier philosophers in all of these traditions, uh, this is not democratic. This is not all men are created equal. That is a much newer idea uh, and, and took a lot longer to take hold. Okay, uh, then he goes into uh, the bad types of friendships. Um, the bad types of friendships are uh, befriending clever flatterers, skillful dissemblers, and the smoothly glib. Uh, these are the harmful types of friendship. Uh, you don't want people that uh, surround you and always tell you that you are wonderful, that you're, you know, you're perfect, you're amazing, uh, you know, to pull a, pull a, a uh, couple of examples out of Contemporary times, Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. Both of these guys always have to surround themselves with people that tell them they're smart, they're powerful, they're great, they're wonderful, you know, they're, they're the top of the pyramid. Uh, you don't want to surround yourself with these people because when that happens, 
these people are basically allowing you to run off a cliff if you're running off a cliff. They might see that you're about to run off a cliff, but they're just going to keep telling you you're wonderful, you're going in the right direction, and then you run off the cliff. You're, you're much better with um, people who are uh, going to tell you the truth, that are going to say, hey, uh, that, that direction you're heading in is not so good. You might want to rethink that. You know, you a good to to have good friends. You want friends that are not just going to cheer you on, but also bring up. You might want to rethink how you're going to do this. So the you know the clever flatterers are not people to be. That's a harmful type of friendship. Uh, the skillful dissemblers. Those are the people that are deceptive. They can make you think their intention is one way when it's actually the other way. You don't want to be around deceptive people. Uh, the smoothly glib. These are people who are insincere and shallow. Um, they're, they're worried more about the surface look. They're more worried more about surface things, and they don't get into depth. They don't want to be in anything that's deep. And, you know, one of the things with any philosopher is, you know, shallowness is always the enemy of philosophy. People that don't think about anything that just float along the surface, uh, you know, that's kind of the opposite of what philosophy wants to do. You know, any philosophy wants to dig in and say, okay, what is, what is underneath all of this? What is the grounding? What is the foundation? Uh, then he talks about uh, types of uh, joy, uh, beneficial types of joy. There are three, and then three harmful types of joy. Uh, the three beneficial joys are regulating yourself through the rites and music, uh, commending the excellence of others, and possessing many wor worthy friends. These are the three types of worthy joy. And notice that these aren't things that are, you know, th this isn't, this is the opposite of the idea of things make you happy. You know, what makes you happy is, um, you know, having some self-control, uh, being able to, you know, the, the, the odes and the music, these are, these are allowing you to uh, kind of experience the higher levels of life. And to do that, you have to have a certain amount of self-control. Um, commending the excellence of others. You know, one of the things about humans is we are social creatures. Um, we have empathy, unless there's something you know, that's kind of gone wrong with your, with your wiring. Um, we have empathy for other people. So it makes us feel good because we're social creatures when we can raise others up. Um, it makes us feel good and it makes them feel good and it creates an atmosphere of everybody raising everybody up. So you're basically creating an environment this way when you commend the good works of others. Uh, this is the opposite of being jealous of someone. You know, someone, you know, writes a book that's amazing or a song or they, uh, you know, run a race or, and, you know, they're the fastest or they start a company and it does really well. You know, the, the, the bad thing to do would be to be jealous of that. The good thing to do would, see, would be to help raise them up and say, wow, you did an amazing job. Uh, and again, this is all about creating a good society. It's not just creating happiness for yourself. It's creating happiness and goodness 
that spreads out through society because as social creatures, it's hard to be happy when everyone else is miserable. And in fact, you can't be because you have that uneasiness that at any time they're going to come and take what you have out of jealousy. Um, let's see. And possessing many worthy friends. So, you know, that's the other joy is having good people around you, having good friends around you, people who are you know, upright and who are going to lift you up when you need it and you lift them up. Uh, you know, that's, you know, one of the things that most people want is good friends. Uh, truly good friends, though. Uh, the harmful types of joy uh, are taking joy in arrogant behavior, idle amusements, and decadent licentiousness. Um, so, you know, Taking joy in uh, bullying someone else, taking joy in cutting someone else down, taking joy in making others feel bad, or boasting about yourself. You know, that's, that's a harmful type of joy. Uh, idle amusements, you know, things that don't, uh, don't help you to grow. You know, it, it, it makes you happy for a minute, but it's an empty happiness. Um, you know, one of the things that you might think about this in modern times is, you know, playing games or, you know, watching sports. Yes, while I agree these things can be enjoyable, uh, when you fill your head with that all the time, uh, you're stunting yourself as a human. And, you know, the more you grow as a human, the more you have a potential to be really happy. Um, these idle amusements don't make you really happy. They make you temporarily distracted. And then decadent licentiousness. Uh, basically, you know, living for the sensual pleasures only. You know, that's, that's a negative type of a harmful type of joy. When all you're doing is pursuing physical pleasures and, you know, pursuing physical joy, um, you're basically shutting everything else out and you're kind of spiraling yourself downhill. Uh, then he talks about the three things that the gentleman stands in awe of. The mandate of heaven, great men, and teaching of sages. Uh, the mandate of heaven, I mean, there's, there's lots of ways you can interpret this. It could mean like the heaven where there's a deistic heaven and God or gods or whatever. But it could also mean, you could also interpret this to mean the order of the world the way the universe, the way the world is. Um, you know, you, the mandate of heaven might be something like, uh, without aid, humans can't fly. That's just the way it is. We can't just start flapping our arms and fly away. Um, to try to go against that and keep flapping your arms and flapping your arms, uh, you're, you're going against the mandate of heaven. So it's kind of like you can also think of it as the natural order of things, the natural things way the ways things are. Now, technology, this is also where it starts to get you can bring up questions on this on technology. You know, how much does our technology benefit us and how much does it interfere with the way things should be? Um, and these are questions that do get raised, uh, especially when you have times where technology explodes. Uh, great men. Um, by great men, he doesn't mean 
phony great men. He means actual great men, people who are gentlemen, who are, you know, other others who are living the right ways and doing the right things and and being the way they're supposed to be. Those are the great men, not necessarily the ones with the most money or the most power. Um, because remember, Confucius really sees that these things are okay if they're obtained the right way, and they are wrong if they're obtained the wrong way. Uh, the teaching of sages. You know, Confucius is definitely one who went back into the old works and, you know, looked at what people were teaching and looked at the ways that things used to be done when he saw as the golden age of his, uh, you know, of, of China when, you know, when things were better. Uh, and, and this is, you know, something that a gentleman should do. They should always look to the sages. They should always look to the wise. Um, the uh, things that the petty person does, uh, the petty person does not understand the mandate of heaven, thus does not regard it with awe. Uh, this is kind of contrary to the idea of ignorance is bliss. Um, the more you know, the more you can appreciate what is. You know, uh, we, especially in the United States, tend to have an anti-intellectual bend in this country that knowing things and understanding things is going to ruin everything. Uh, so don't try to think too much. Don't, tr you know, don't be one of those people that thinks all the time. Um, and this is one of the things he sees as a, a trait of a petty person. Uh, someone who says, I don't know, don't want to know, and just, and therefore isn't able to really experience um, how amazing things are. Uh, he shows disrespect for great men. Um, you know, the petty person, because they're not doing anything to improve themselves, they will always try to shoot at what other people are doing. They will always try to run everybody else down. You know, this to me is always a sign of someone who is very uh, insecure and also very unwilling to put any work you know, it's much easier to just look at people who are doing well, being successful, and say, well, that person's an idiot, I hate that person, or that person's a bad person, than it is to say, okay, why am I where I am? Why, you know, what can I do to make me better? Uh, remember, the central, central to all of his philosophy is the idea of where you start is with yourself. The petty person doesn't do that. They just would rather be, you know, basically, you know, uh, to, to quote a slang term, they would rather just throw shade at everybody who is great, who is doing well. Um, and then they also ridicule the teaching of sages. And again, this kind of goes back to that anti-intellectual attitude. That we don't need to, you know, the, we, we don't need what those intellectual elites are talking about. They're bad people. Um, you know, what they're talking about is foolish. The, the way we, we want to do things and see things, that's, that's the only way we're going to see things and do things. So it really does kind of, uh, in a lot of ways, reading this as an American, um, this is very damning of American and modern, the modern world, and that a lot of people do kind of fall under being the petty. Um, they don't have anything that they're within themselves uh, that they see as great. So instead of trying to fix that to become better than they are, 
they just kind of shoot at everything else and run down everything else. Okay, um, and he talks about uh, kind of the levels of, of people. This is kind of his aristocracy. Those who are born understanding it are the best. Those who come to understand it through learning are second. Those who find it difficult to understand and yet persist in their studies come next. People who find it difficult to understand but do not even try to learn are the worst of all. So he kind of, this is his aristocracy. You know, the people who are kind of born geniuses and they just really intuitively get any get everything. That's kind of the, the highest type. The people who aren't necessarily born geniuses but work and study and understand things, you know, and eventually get to that point, he sees that as kind of the next level. Uh, the people who really struggle with it but keep trying, they're one level below that. Uh, and then the people that uh, are, he puts at the bottom of the hierarchy are the people that just, they struggle with it, so they're like, you know what, I'm just not going to even try. I just walk away and I quit. Okay. Um, those sections of the book I really wanted to bring out and talk about today because, as I said, I think they do raise a lot of questions uh, for modern life, uh, especially in the United States and, and Europe, um, where we kind of have this idea of individualism. And America is the, the biggest one for the idea of the rugged individualism. Uh, and Confucius would be on, boards with part, on board with parts of that and very much opposed to other parts of that. And one of the struggles that I think all systems have had was trying to find the right balance between the group and the individual. And it seems like all systems either skew one you know, too far in one direction or the other. They want to say, no, it's all about just the group and the society, and that's the only thing that's important. And the individual is just a cog in the machine, and they're, you know, we need to squash anything that's different and outside of what everybody else is doing. Or you have the other side that say, you know, society is only good because there's individuals, so who cares about the majority? Only the individual is important. Every, everything else simply exists to serve that individual. And the problem is we don't have a nature that is one way or the other. We, we, don't, we aren't just social creatures, and we aren't just individual creatures. We're a little bit of both. So one of the things I've always done personally is I look through different philosophies and, you know, different systems, different ideas, was, you know, I look at sort of where does this person seem to go too far? Um, and, and Confucius actually has a pretty good balance. Um, he does, I think, overemphasize tradition a little bit too much and, and the kind of the idea of going back to the good old days. And this is kind of a failure in, in my opinion. That's just my opinion. Um, in that it kind of falls under what would be known as a golden age fallacy. You know, there, there is no going back to the good old days. And most of the time when you do go back and look at those days even closer, they weren't really that good. They just seemed really good from the outside. Uh, humans have a long tradition of looking back to the good old days. Uh, even in the uh, the Iliad, written by Homer, uh, like around 800 years, 
BCE. Um, you have this character in the Iliad uh, who is looking back to the good old days when the when the gods roamed the earth and when, you know when they were in wars and stuff like that. And Homer wrote the Iliad in a time in the past where he saw was the good old days. So you have a story of set in the past in the good old days, and someone within that story is going, yeah, no, the good old days were really back in this time period. And if you think about it, we do this all the time. Um, you know, when were the good old days? Oh, they were the 80s. The 80s were wonderful. Or they were the 90s. Or they were the 50s. Um, you know, every every era looks back to an era before and thinks they had it, uh, you know, so good. And if we could just go back to that. Problem is you can never go back. History moves one direction. It's forward. Um, that doesn't mean we should just throw away history. And On the contrary, it does mean we should look into the good old days, the good eras, and see which of those ideas need to be kept, which of those ideas can still work in the modern era, and which of those ideas are, you know, were bad ideas, and it's a good thing that those ideas are gone. So that would kind of be my one main critique of Confucius, is that he he is living in a, in a very troubling times, and he is trying to just sort of retreat back a little bit to the way things used to be. Um, and, and this is something that does happen. You know, people tend to go one of two ways. They either want to jump back to the past and try to get it back to the way it was there, or they want to leap into the future. Uh, the problem with both of those perspectives, though, is that if your mind is always in the past or always in the future, um, you're not thinking about now and where you actually are. And one of the things important to get to a better place is yes, look at the past, look at those ideas, yes, look to the future, but also look at what the conditions are right now that you're living in. What are your uh, struggles? What are your advantages? What are your disadvantages? And don't become too rigid with, well, it'll all be cured here someday in the future, or if we just went back to the way it used to be, it'll, it'll all be cured again. Okay, uh, I'm going to break off this episode here. Uh, in the next episodes, I am going to be covering... Um, uh, poetry, uh, the Chinese poetry, basically the odes from Confucius. I'm going to spend a few episodes on that. Uh, then we're probably going to jump into uh, a little bit of Indian philosophy and literature, ancient Indian philosophy and literature. We will also come back and do some more Chinese. We're going to kind of move around a lot of in the Eastern um, traditions, uh, philosophical and literary traditions for a little while. And then we'll sort of move into Middle Eastern and then uh, Greek and Roman. And that'll be where we end out this semester. Okay, I hope all of you are doing well and I hope all of you are staying safe. Have a good day.